Thank you, thank you, thank you. Far too kind. Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn boys. So for one last time, I need y'all to brawl. Now what the hell are you waiting for? After me, there should be no more. So for one last time, nigga, make some noise. Who you know fresher than whole? Riddle me that. The rest of y'all know where I'm lurking. Yeah. Can't none of y'all never... Do you want to be famous? It's a question we're all familiar with, and we've all heard at some point. There are several other words which could replace famous in English. Celebrity, superstar, idol, VIP. At the other end of the spectrum exists an array of words and phrases to describe people who are anti-famous, that is, ordinary people. Average Joe, plain Jane, commoner, pleb, a nobody. Our society indeed has both of these types of people, the famous and the anti-famous or the ordinary folk. There's nothing wrong with that. But there is, nevertheless, a significant swath of the population which falls in between these extremes. Or put another way, our society has thousands if not millions of people who are, for lack of a better word, semi-famous. I'm talking about, say, the president of a liberal arts college, or a comedian's comedian, or LeBron's personal trainer, or New York City's undisputed best acupuncturist. Interestingly, however, our language has no words to describe these people. Perhaps we can say that they're well-regarded, or esteemed, or prestigious, but none of these words are exactly on point. More importantly, we have all heard people say things like, I want to be famous, or I want to be a star, or I want to be a celebrity. Yet, very seldom do we hear people say, I want to be kind of famous, or I want to be esteemed. This is strange, as it is rather impossible to become famous, yet semi-fame or quasi-fame is generally within almost everyone's reach and is probably similarly gratifying to actual fame. I can specifically relate to this concept because, while I'm not yet a rabbi or a true professor, I tend to run in these circles. And there are many rabbis and professors who I would describe as renowned, esteemed, well-known, but few, if any of them, are famous. The only famous professors in living memory are probably Timothy Leary or Cornell West. Famous rabbis? Probably just Jonathan Sachs. Yet, even if rabbis and professors are not celebrities, they may often still feel like superstars within their communities. They don't have one million fans. They maybe have a hundred or a thousand or ten thousand. There are dozens of professors who I would feel starstruck to speak with, but no one else in the bar would have ever heard of them. This dynamic can be witnessed across an array of professions. Doctors, lawyers, CEOs, chefs, physicists, engineers. They are famous, but only within their communities. Unfortunately, though, we have no word to describe this type of status, which would be apropos to capture perhaps millions of people. 
Fame itself is arguably an unnatural phenomenon. Fame requires communication. If you haven't heard of someone, if news of this person hasn't reached you, then this person will not be famous to you. Fame, in short, is in the eye of the beholder, not in the celebrities themselves. In ancient societies in which communication technology was primitive, there were very few celebrities, if any. Back then, I would imagine, it was enough to just be famous within your community of a few dozen or a few hundred people. The idea of fame outside of one's community was such a bizarre and preposterous idea back then. So bizarre that, I would guess, hardly anyone ever set their sights upon this horizon. You are listening to The Shrift. Life to 22, First Kings 18. Grand opening, grand closing. God damn your manhole, crack the can open again. Who you gonna find open in hell with no pen? Just draw off inspiration. Who you gonna see you can't replace him with cheap imitations? Can I get an encore? Do you want more? Cook and roll with the Brooklyn balls. one last time, I need y'all to The story of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation provides a helpful illustration of this idea. Martin Luther was born in 1483 in the German city of Eisleben. It is about two hours southwest of Berlin by car, not far from Jena and Erfurt. Luther then studied theology in Erfurt and later became both a professor and a priest of the now famous city of Wittenberg. At the time, Wittenberg had only about 2,500 residents this is a very, very small number of people. To give you an idea, this is about the number of people who board a small Disney cruise ship. As a professor in Wittenberg, Luther was famous within his community. His lectures were popular and well attended. He was respected by the other faculty members. He even knew some of the elites of the region like the Archbishop of Mainz. But of course, he wasn't famous. That, however, would change in 1517, when Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door of Wittenberg. These theses, or arguments, listed 95 grievances or complaints against the Catholic Church. They specifically noted how the church's policies and theology contradicted the Christian Bible. Many of these theses were challenges against the Pope's ability to release people from sin and against the Pope's power to release people from purgatory. In past eras, this act of nailing the 95 Theses to the church door might have made Luther famous within his community, or, that is to say, not famous at all. Because if only 2,500 people know you, sorry, but you're not famous. But, in fact, Luther would become famous in the real way. That is, he would become known throughout Europe he would become a celebrity in every European city he entered. Millions of people would know his name, but he would not know theirs. What made fame possible for Luther? It was not the greatness of his ideas, or his charisma, or his revolutionary nature, although all of these factors surely helped. In fact, what propelled Luther to stardom was communication technology. 
because when Luther posted the 95 Theses, he also had the printing press at his fingertips. The printing press. The printing press was invented about 70 years earlier by Johannes Gutenberg in the city of Mainz on the Rhine in Western Germany. The printing press allowed text to be relatively rapidly reproduced. In the past, an entire page needed to be handwritten, letter by letter, through the meticulous penwork of an overworked scribe. Now, however, all you had to do was stamp down the press and voila, the entire page was finished, fertig. But 70 years later, when Luther posted his theses, the full potential of the technology of the printing press had yet to be realized. In this sense, it may be compared with computers, which hung around for many decades before their existence-altering capacities could be known. In 1517, there was only one printing press in Wittenberg, which was tasked merely with producing ugly, sloppy copies of the theses of local university students. But Luther, electrified by his revolutionary ideas and infuriated at the Catholic Church, was not content to let only the small college town of Wittenberg be his audience. I am now going to quote at length a 2015 article from the Washington Post entitled The Power of Luther's Printing Press. This excerpt breathtakingly captures how adeptly Luther wielded his new technology to become one of the first European celebrities. Quote, Luther realized the untapped potential of print as a mass medium and used it to broadcast his message to lay readers across the German states he bypassed the traditional gatekeepers via this new social media. He responded to the first scholarly criticism of his theses, not in Latin, the language of scholarship, but in German, with a clear, straightforward 1,500-word essay that could be read aloud in 10 minutes. It fit perfectly into an eight-page pamphlet that could be quickly and cheaply printed and reprinted, each copy using but a single sheet of paper folded in quarto. It was an instant publishing sensation. The indulgence controversy was suddenly a public matter, and Luther churned out one argument after another over the next two years. Printers in other cities, who saw the public demand for the inexpensive texts from this eloquent new voice, made their own editions, which spread across Germany at unprecedented speed. By 1519, this unknown monk had become Europe's most published author his 45 original compositions republished in nearly 300 editions." Unquote. And so, a star was born. But Luther couldn't do it alone. He needed this greasy, oily, clunky, hefty printing press always by his side in order to get his name out of backwater Wittenberg and overcome the inherent limits of geography. Indeed, 100 years before Luther, a preacher from Prague named Jan Hus also spoke out vehemently against the church. But Jan Hus lived before the printing press, and so his ideas could never get very far beyond his Prague orbit. While Luther was famous, Hus was only semi-famous. And so, Hus was burned at the stake by the Catholic Church in 1415. Unlike Luther, he could not generate enough support with the masses to enable his protection. 
fame, however, offers a diminishing margin of return. Growing your fan base from 100 to 200 is far more satisfying than growing it from 1 million to 1 million 100. That goes without saying. But I question whether it even makes sense to become famous at all. I'm not saying that it isn't great to be famous, but does it really matter if you are a celebrity among a small cohort of people or with all of the masses? In his 2000 book, The Tipping Point, author Malcolm Gladwell devotes a section to the magical number of 150. 150. What is so special about this number 150? Gladwell begins by explaining how our brains can only process a certain amount of information at one time. Our brains can only conceptualize so many numbers at once. If, for example, we are asked to drink 20 glasses of iced tea and then to rank them based on sweetness, our categorization capacities will break down after about six or seven drinks. Gladwell points out how this limited capacity extends to our feelings as well. Count, Gladwell instructs, how many people are in your life who, if they died, their death would leave you feeling truly devastated. While we may care about a lot of people, maybe even hundreds, the number of people whose death would leave, leave us bereft and grieving ends up being about 12 or less. Immediate family, a few lovers, a few friends, maybe a pet, and that's it. This is true not only for the old cat lady living by herself in the countryside, but also even for avid socialites with extensive networks of friends and family. It's as if the brain decides that it only has enough emotional hard drive for a few handfuls of people, and after that, it shuts down. If 12 is the limit for the inner circle, then 150 is the limit for the outer circle. Gladwell shows how, in a study of hunter-gatherer societies, the number 150 keeps popping up again and again. Once a tribe goes over 150, a portion of that tribe breaks off and forms a new group. Why is 150 the limit? Because, Gladwell explains, the brain can only handle about 150 genuine relationships. These are the kinds of relationships where you know the other person and know how to relate to them. It is the kind of relationship where, if you bumped into that person at a bar, you wouldn't feel embarrassed to join them for a drink, uninvited. And so, go through your list of Facebook friends or Instagram followers. For how many of them would you feel comfortable if you saw them randomly at a bar, pulling up a chair and joining them for a beer without being asked? The answer is almost certainly less than 150. And so, this is the reason why in hunter-gatherer societies, new groups form once the original group swells over 150. It is because the overall strength of the group dynamic suffers when people must work or interact with other folks with whom they don't feel comfortable. There is too much small talk around the fire pit, too many awkward moments during the bison hunt, too many times the question, what's your name again, is asked during the collection of berries and nuts. Indeed, militaries have long kept the size of their units to under 150 in order to enable this feeling of cohesiveness and common purpose. Modern businesses, too, have often made sure that their offices do not employ more than 150 workers. In the Haftarah for 
this week for the Parsha of Vayachel, we find a nice example of someone who was not famous, but half famous. Not a star, but instead a kind of light bulb. This was Hiram. You've heard of Hiram, right? You know, Hiram, the famous brass worker whose father came from the ancient Lebanese city of Tyre. Well, if you haven't heard of Hiram, he basically was an incredible sculptor of brass. And King Solomon assigned him to design and build all of the brass objects in the temple, the brass pots, the brass pillars, the hundred of brass pomegranates on the lattices. The Torah reads that King Solomon, quote, hired Hiram out of Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill to work all works in brass. And he came to King Solomon and showed his craft, unquote. Hiram was clearly no King Solomon. He was not known by the masses. He was not worshipped by millions. His name is all but meaningless to us today. In short, he was not famous. But what was he? Well, he was obviously semi-famous. Solomon chose him from all the brass sculptors and brass artisans in the Levant. This means that he would have been famous within his circle, within the knowing few who understood his idiosyncratic greatness. Undoubtedly, other brass workers would have known of Hiram and would have been starstruck if they ran into him at the market. The other architects and artists of the temple would also have stood in awe of Hiram, whom Solomon pulled all the way from Lebanon to come work for him. But the old milkmaid or the camel dealer or the mayor of Akko? No. These folks would have known King Solomon, but they would have had no clue who Hiram was. But even though Solomon was objectively 1,000 times more famous than Hiram, I'm not sure Hiram would have felt any less famous. This is because, in fact, if we want to feel famous, we only need a certain number of people to admire our craft and respect what we do and to have heard of us. I'm not going to say the number is 150, but at a certain number, the brain cannot process or grasp additional praise and additional fandom. Put another way, I would hypothesize that the half-famous people feel, if only unconsciously, just as much like celebrities as the bona fide megastars. The Roman Stoic philosopher Epictetus once said that if we try to take on a role which is beyond our powers to achieve, not only do we fail at this objective, but we also miss out on the opportunity to achieve a position which is within our reach. In this sense, Hiram was a clever man. He knew, as the son of a mere Tyrian craftsman, that he could never really become famous. He could never become king. But Hiram figured out a way to become semi-famous, so much so that he even got his name into the Bible. How did he accomplish this feat? Through specialization. He devoted himself to the sculpting of one metal, brass, and made himself the king of this sub-sub-sub profession. And so, he figured out a way to feel famous without ever actually being so.
Thank you. 